since 2008, Marvel Studios has brought us over 10 years of cinematic blockbusters, and nothing will ever be the same. Can we, as mere mortals, prevail? Join us to find out. Peter Melnick, graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. True believers, the next chapter begins with another episode of The Marvelists. Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Sue Richards, Johnny Storm. Together they braved the unknown terrors of outer space and were changed into something more than human. Mr. Fantastic, The Thing, The Invisible Girl, The Human Torch. And now the world will never again be the same. Stan Lee presents The Fantastic Four. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, an icon, if you will, we want to let you all know at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar social medias. Okay, how? First up, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick podcast or give myself a like. I, I, it's It's appreciated. Also, go on the Twitter machine at... The Marvelous, of course. Yeah. Also, give myself a follow at Peter Melnick. And then go on to Instagram at, once again... The Marvelous. I mean, it's really on the tin, you know. Mm. Also, you can follow myself at Peter Melnick and yourself... At Eddie9193. Drop us a line in our email bag. Questions, comments, strongly worded letters, haikus, uh, choreographed dance numbers. I don't know. But whatever it is, just send it our way. The Marvelous at Gmail... Dot com. Also, listen to us on a wide, wide, wide variety of streaming platforms. First off, go on iTunes at iTunes. Well, yeah, you know, the app, whatever. Mm-hmm. But rate, review, subscribe, share. Five star if you're ever, ever, ever so inclined. I just keep repeating words. Mm-hmm. Also, go on, once again, available for all iOS and Android devices. Tune in radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, and the Biggin mm-hmm. Spotify. That's it. But go and drift and wind right back over to Stitcher. Go on Stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And get a free one month of Stitcher Premium. And then afterwards it's only $4.99 a month and cancel at any time if you feel so inclined. But when you're on Stitcher Premium, you can listen to a ton of audio content, including Marvel's first foray into serialized podcasting, Wolverine, The Long Night. Which is also being serialized as a comic book. Huh. A comic book character turned into a podcast, turned into a comic book. Who'd have thunk it? Not the breakfast item. Exactly. But once again, Stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. Only four ninety nine a month after that free one month trial. Whew. So, Eddie, this is our final episode for the month of February, and it is... Fantastic. It was representing Fantastic Four, Fantastic February, and the person we got on the other end of the line is an Academy Award-winning producer, and he is an icon in all sorts of genres of film. I know him specifically for his one movie where it was a little shop, and there were, there were horrors all over. Oh, okay. Eddie? He, among other things, and this is off the source that I obtained, the Pope of Pop Cinema, not only director and producer, but actor to his credits, a trailblazer in the world of independent film, which, as years have developed, 
has increased and grown. It's Roger Corman. Roger, thank you and welcome. Happy to be here. Now, Roger, you've worked alongside a lot of talents in your long, illustrious career, and one of them was Vincent Price. Vincent was a icon in what he did as well, and I wanted to know, how was it like working with Mr. Price? It was a total joy. Vincent was an extremely intelligent and sensitive man. I first met him uh, when I sent him the script of The Fall of the House of Usher, the first of the Edgar Allan Poe pictures I made. We had lunch. He had read the script and uh, liked the script and said he'd like to talk with me. I was producing and directing. And we had a very pleasant lunch. Uh, he was very well educated. He went, went, I think, to Yale and then the University of London. He then appeared on the stage in London and in New York before coming here. And uh, he was not only a very intelligent man, he was very sensitive and very conscientious. He did a lot of uh, pre-production preparation, which I believe in very strongly. Yeah, you know what? I agree. I've heard some similar things about Mr. Vincent Price, and uh, that just goes right along with it. You, of course, got better and more close personal experience, um, but it does make perfect sense to get into there, um, knowing what you're getting into, pre-prepping uh, and, and so on. I mean, that's that's great. Along, as we've said, and, and we'll just be gushing, if you don't mind, as Roger, in such a long career and kind of like uh, sort of pinching ourselves that, wow, we're talking to this guy? Yeah. We knew the na- we've known the name for years, even though Peter is much younger than myself. He could be my son. Uh, I could be yours, for that matter. But yeah, we'll leave it. Grandson. We'll leave it. There you go. Right. Exactly. But at least he knows. He he knows some stuff, and that's good. And this whole podcast thing, I kind of go along for the ride, and say, okay, well, doing this, sure, why not? Um, I'm just going to glean off a, a couple of things that I that I have here. Your one of the unmade and unreleased films a listing that I have here goes back to 1955. If you want to talk a little bit about it, it's called High Steel, a steeplejack story. Uh, there's an error somewhere. I've never heard of that picture, but that's typical huh. of his biographies. Uh, a matter of fact, I will also say I didn't make Gone with the Wind either. <laughs> make a note. Yeah, okay. You know what? I don't doubt that, too, because either unmade, unreleased, retitled, that could be any of those things after it was out of your hands. If you did indeed do some things, I would assume, yeah. You know, that has happened, as a matter of fact. Several times um, I've made pictures where the title went out on theatrically, and then later on somebody, when they did a DVD release, would change the title. So it might maybe I did hide... High steel. As a matter of fact, maybe I did Gone with the Wind. I don't remember <laughs> what I was doing that year. And do I have a check coming? Jeez. Right. Wow. With yeah. some of those retitlings, were there any that you know caught your attention? Like, wow, that, that that was actually better than my idea. Or, really, you're going with that one? I remember I did uh, a movie of the week for uh, ABC called What's In It for Harry. And uh, it was later sent out on DVD, and they changed the title to target Harry, and uh, I thought that was not a good choice, but I figured, what can I do? No, and I think the way, when those those changed titles, I thought it had to do with what country it's released in, or for translation purposes, but I guess it, it domestically could be with respect to rights, licensing, any of those 
wonderful things that involve money. Yes, as a matter of fact, the first picture Francis Coppola made, uh, he made for me, uh, we called it dementia, we called it dementia, and during the editing, we found out that there had been another picture called dementia, so I thought, and I called Francis in the editing room, and uh, I, I told him what had happened, and I said, I've come up with the title, Dementia 13. Can you do a loop in a line somewhere that the killer had some traumatic experience when he was 13, and that's what caused uh, all the problems in the picture? And Francis said, sure, I can do that. So dementia became Dementia 13. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Roger, what was the first film that really caught your attention and made you go, wow, I want to be a filmmaker? Uh, there probably a number of films. I remember when I was very young and I was beginning to be interested in science fiction, and there was an English science fiction picture called Things to Come, which was really a wonderful science fiction picture. And for some reason, it seems to be pretty much forgotten. I think of it as an early science fiction classic. So that's where it started. How old were you, do you recall? Oh, I was maybe uh, 11 or 12 years old, something like that. And the film bug bit Roger. That's it. Yeah. What in, uh, if this part of it is correct, besides directing and producing, you did some acting? Do you recall those days and what you did? Well, it was really sort of a, a joke. Uh, Francis Coppola called me. Uh, he was doing Godfather Part Two, and he asked me if I'd like to be the junior senator on the Senate uh, Crime Committee. Uh, and I said, sure. And so I, I worked a couple of days on Godfather Part Two, and then Jonathan Demme called me. And what it was, it was a number of directors who'd started with me, and just out of friendly old times, they would call me, and uh, I would play little bit roles in their pictures. And I remember the Screen Actors Guild called me and said, you have to join the Guild. And I said, this is just a joke between the, the directors and me. And they said, the joke has gone too far. You're working more than half our members. Oh, so I joined, joined Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, they wanted the dues also, but um, yeah. You kind of exactly. have to, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, kind of see how that goes, right? All right. Being called a trailblazer in the world of independent film tells me nobody, not many people, were doing this then. And what is it in the time that you've done and worked on pictures throughout all these years um, most noticeable in terms of any big changes or things that stick out? And I want to also segue into things that make you you in terms of what you do in, the, in producing and directing. The biggest change has been the fact that uh, production is easier and distribution is more difficult. Mm. When I started, we were working with the big B Mitchell BNC cameras, heavy lighting equipments. Uh, I remember a, a giant one was called a brute. It took two guys to move one light around. And now... Everything with digital and LED lights and so forth, you can hold a camera in your hand, and uh, that makes the shooting more efficient and easier. On the other hand, when I started, every picture, provided it had some decent commercial quality, uh, got a full theatrical release, even very low-budget pictures. And today, 
medium and low budget pictures very seldom play in theaters. Every now and then, some personal film that has been made exceptionally well gets a theatrical release, or occasionally uh, an unusual horror picture does. But other than that, uh, the distribution patterns have changed, and they've changed for the worse, while production has changed for the better. Well, on the topic of uh, film distribution, you during your career, you've been able to see films go from being released in movie theaters, on VHS, on Betamax, Laserdisc, etc., etc., and now it's going into the streaming format. What was your... What what are your thoughts on seeing the evolution of film distribution? You know, since you started, you know, back in the day, I think it's simply uh, the progress of technology. For instance, first films were black and white, not because black and white was so good, but simply because the chemicals could only uh, record black and white. Color came in. Uh, the first films were silent because they couldn't record sound on a set. And suddenly you had you went from silent black and white films to sound and color films, and we're seeing a similar change uh, in the industry now. And uh, for me, for distribution, particularly what you were talking about, I see it moving to the streaming system, and uh, uh, I'm starting to move into that myself. We're considering forming our own streaming uh, entity, but we don't quite know how to do it. We're, uh, try- we're trying to figure it out. Are you involved at the moment with like maybe Netflix or Shudder? Uh, my last film, oh, my last film, I'm a Chinese producer these days. My last film was for IGE, a Chinese company in Beijing, but the picture before that was uh, Death Race 2050, which was one of the multiple remakes of my old picture, The Death Race 2000. <laughs> and it was done for Universal for a little less than $2 million, which to me was a big budget. But for them, it was a low budget, and it was intended for DVD and uh, other things. And I remember when I was doing some publicity for it, and it was sold to Netflix, and I, uh, somebody asked me the distribution pattern, and I said, well, it's coming out on DVD, and then after that, it'll be coming out on Netflix. And there was a very nice young uh, publicity woman from uh, Universal who was sort of shepherding me around. And she said, Roger, it's coming out on Netflix the same day it's coming out on DVD, which I didn't know, but it shows the shift in power that Netflix can pressure a major studio like Universal that in order to make the deal... They're going out with the picture the same day it's coming out on DVD. Now, also, going back over, you mentioned Death Race 2000, and I've noticed you're responsible for bringing a lot of major names that we know today through your films. You introduced the world to Sylvester Stallone in Death Race. You introduced the world to Jack Nicholson in the original Little Shop of Horrors. Who is your number one discovery, in your opinion, that you helped bring out into the world? I've been asked that before, and uh, I never give an answer. All I can say is I'm proud of all of them, because if I pick one guy, somebody else is going to call me and say, Roger, (laughs) don't you forget what a good time we had together? That was the answer I was hoping for, by the way. (laughs) You you passed the mustard. (laughs) 
That's great. With Roger, the independent film, I had a question. What kind of a budget or range in terms of dollars, you know, makes constitutes an independent film? How much can you put out, spend that would, you know, say, yes, independent only cost us just in terms of that? Well, that's varied over the years. Uh, the first picture I ever made cost $30,000. Of course, if you allow for inflation, that would be a great deal more today. But that was $30,000. And uh, uh, the last couple of pictures that I've been making have been around $2 million or so as in independent films. But I hear of pictures, you know, costing $10 million and... People refer to them as a low-budget independent film, yep. so I think it's uh, in the eye of the of the observer. So maybe I'm thinking I'm not trying to group low-budget with independent together. Of course, independent means studio company that's attached to it, but just in terms of the the amount spent, yeah, budget. So a couple million, ten million can still be a low-budget film because I'm not sure. I'm sure it's something that can be looked up. What generally speaking, a film is budgeted at. Nowadays. Actually, nobody knows. I remember doing a picture uh, a couple couple of times I've worked for major studios. I was doing the St. Valentine's Day Massacre for Fox, and they gave me an office, and I checked in, and the day after I checked in, uh, uh, I got the first uh, production cost report, and it was for about $10,000 for grip equipment. And I called him and I said, I've just seen this. Never send me a production cost report again. I realize it's going to be whatever you guys want to call it. <laughs> right. Okay. I just thought in that last question and answer, in, in uh, high school, I took a film class, and there was a, st- a statistic that I remembered throughout. And that, uh, I don't know if it's changed. That's why I want to ask this question. Out of every 10 films that are made, seven fail. They don't make money, they lose money. Two break even, and one makes money. Is that about right, or? I think that's uh, about right according to studio accounting. Mm -hmm. Uh, In reality, uh, I think there should be an Academy Award given for most creative accounting. (laughs) But at any rate, uh, I would say I agree that the majority of films lose money. But I'd say... 40% 40% or so, maybe 30 to 40% are profitable in reality. Okay, that's good news for the film industry, especially with these other mediums that are out there. Right. I think I have one other question to ask, and then we can get back to our fantastic part of this. Uh, not that it's unpleasant now, but your uh, autobiography, uh, a little bit about that. I'm not sure if uh, my source tells me when it was done, but how I made 100 movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime. Uh, the publisher put that title on the book, and they told me they had chosen this title. And I said, look, I've made more than 100 films, and I've lost, I've lost a couple of times. Uh, and they said, has the title of every picture uh, reflected accurately what was in the picture? And I said, call the book anything you want. <laughs> okay. But what's in there otherwise besides the title is you? It's you know, it's Roger Corman approved, right? Well, you go along as much as you can. <laughs> I get that. Okay, 
Peter, how about it? Let's talk about this movie. So, Roger, in the early 1990s, you were involved as the producer of a film that never got released. The one Roger Corman film, I believe, that never did get released. And that was Constantine Films and Marvel's Fantastic Four. I I don't know why. I just had that. I'll go with with a dramatic pause for that. But anyway. That's it. yeah. Yeah. But Fantastic Four. Now, this movie is... It's famous in pop culture because of the fact it never got released. How did you first get approached to be involved with the film? Well, the whole story is, uh, uh, I don't know what the word, uh, let's settle for incredible. Bernd Eichinger, a German producer, his company was Constantine. Uh, He made a number of very big films, and he was a friend of mine, and he came to me, in the autumn of, I think it was 1992, with the Fantastic Four. And he said, "Uh, Roger, I've I've got a problem, and maybe we can work together uh, to solve it. He said, I've got a script and a budget for the Fantastic Four of 30 million. The script is a good script, and I've got a budget of $30 million, um, but I haven't been able to raise $30 million, and my option on the property ends December 31st if I haven't started production. And maybe uh, we can work together and you can produce a picture for me for the money I've got. And I said, Bernd, how how much do you have? He said, I've got a million dollars. And I'd like to have you make the Fantastic Four. And I said, well, Bernd, that's a, a pretty heavy drop in a budget from 30 million to 1 million yeah. this was on a friday and i said i'll tell you what i'll do let me send the script down to the our guys at the studio they'll look at it over the weekend i'll look at it over the weekend and uh, let's have a meeting monday and i'll tell you what we can do so uh, we all looked at it and made notes as obviously it had to be tightened and trimmed in a number of ways. And I said, I, th- I think we can make a decent little picture here uh, out of this. And he said, well, we've got to move fast because there are a lot of special effects and we've got to start shooting before uh, December 31st. And I said, well, that's exactly what the same conclusion we came to. So we figure... Uh, December 31st, nobody will be working. We want to start shooting on December 30th. And Bernd said, well, it'll be, if we start shooting on December 30th, it'll be obvious we're just starting shooting in order to meet the deadline. Let's start shooting on December 26th. And I said, Bernd, it's going to be obvious what we're doing. <laughs> Whatever date we pick, we finally picked, I think it was the 28th or something like that. And the situation, the deal was uh, uh, the weirdest deal I've ever been involved in. It burnt put up the whole million dollars, and we were to make the picture. And I had my own uh, distribution company, New World, at that time. And he said, what I'm going to try to do is to uh, sell this picture to a major studio and make some sort of a deal. And uh, if I do, I will pay you a bonus of a certain a few hundred thousand dollars. But if I can't make a deal by a certain date, you can distribute the film and I'll put up another million dollars for prints and advertising. 
Well, in 92, it was just the 90s were just the beginning of the period when a theatrical distribution for medium and low-budget pictures were beginning to fade. And I thought, this is a great opportunity, as I see this market starting to go away, to see if we can take a famous comic book like Fantastic Four and for a million dollars maybe make some money. So we did exactly that. And he had a certain amount of time in which he had to make a deal. And it looked like he wasn't going to make a deal, and I figured I'm going to win either way. Uh, if uh, he makes a deal, he gives me a few hundred thousand dollars bonus uh, for giving up the picture. If he doesn't make the deal, we'll have a chance to experiment and maybe make a lot of money in distribution. And just before the time was up, we even prepared a poster and a trailer. We still we have pictures posters around the office of various pictures we've made and somewhere in the back of one of the offices we still got the poster for the Fantastic Four just before his time was up he made a deal I think with 20th Century Fox and I'm not certain but I think it was Fox and he told me he came in and gave me the check for the money and I said that's great Bernd uh, what's going to happen to the picture and he said well Fox doesn't want me to distribute the film because uh, I'm now going to make it for $30 million for them. He eventually made it for $60 million for them. And uh, they said, uh, we have to agree not to distribute the film. And uh, that's the story Burnt told me. Now, I uh, heard that Marvel somehow got involved in it also and said uh, they wanted to make certain that the big picture went out and the little picture uh, didn't uh, interfere with its distribution. So it was the strangest deal I've ever been involved in, and that is essentially the story. The, the other thing is, it was a pretty good little picture. We were, you know, it just cost a million bucks but uh, for a Marvel picture, but we thought it was pretty good. We were looking forward to distributing it. It was a fun movie, and it's surprising because a lot of fans, myself included, will go on record saying that that was the most accurate version of the Fantastic Four from the source material. Yes, it was, because Burnt had done a lot of research and made certain that it stayed close to as, uh, to the original uh, four characters. And we, of course, went along with Burnt's script. All we did, we had to uh, trim out... Uh, a number of the special effects and so forth, which we obviously couldn't do. So we stayed uh, true to that script. Now, I'm curious, around this time you were working on this, prior or even a little bit after, did DC ever approach you about producing a film for them? That question is actually asked, by the way, by Chad Young of Horror Movie Barbecue. So, Now, I've forgotten... At one time, I had an option on Spider-Man, and I don't remember whether Spider-Man was DC or Marvel. 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 Well, no, then I'm not, uh, didn't, I've never had any connection to DC, only with Marvel. Now, were you active on the set of Fantastic Four as it was filming? Yes. On the other hand, having been a director for so many years as a producer... Uh, I don't spend as much time on the set as most producers do. My feeling is my job as a producer is primarily 
pulling it all together. And I'm on the set for the first couple of days. If everything is going well, I step away, and I figure from there on in, the director and the production manager are running it. Now, obviously, I'm looking at dailies every night, and I can be on the phone uh, uh, to the director if there are any comments I want to make. And I prefer to function that way. Having been a director, I didn't like producers uh, uh, looming over me, and that's one of the reasons I became a director-producer. So I sort of followed that in in deference, and actually to, I think, uh, to a more efficient work from the director working that way. So then, uh, Roger, it took how long to, to make this Fantastic Four film? I think we had four weeks. Well, the Fantastic Four, four weeks. Yeah. I think it was four weeks. It was two days before New Year's and then picking up again on January 2nd. Any memorable stories from your time when you were on the set? Not really. The picture went um, went uh, rather smoothly. Uh, we had only a short, you know, for that type of picture, a very short uh, preparation picture, and I'm a strong believer in heavy pre-production planning and preparation, so you solve as many problems as you can before shooting, not during shooting. And it went um, went rather well. I don't remember any specific uh, problems. A couple of the special effects shots, uh, I remember, took a little longer to set up than we anticipated. But in hindsight, that we should have anticipated that. With the film, one of the most memorable aspects of it is the Thing's costume, the animatronics. What were some of the things about the Thing, no pun intended, that you marveled at? That you were like, wow, this is incredible with what we're doing. Actually, I marveled at the whole thing. I thought for for a picture this complicated, not only in the special effects, but in the characters themselves, the interactions in the story, to do this... Uh, for a million dollars, I marveled at the fact that we were able to pull the thing off. I think both Bernd and I were worried that that we might go over budget because he said, that's all the money I've got. We cannot go over budget. Now, in the back of my mind was, well, if we go a day or two over budget, uh, maybe I'll put up a little money or maybe Bernd will find something somewhere. But uh, we brought it in on schedule and on budget. Now, the other thing about this film that is so well-known is the fact that since it was never released, how are people going to be able to watch it? It ended up getting circulated at conventions, at comic book shops, etc., etc. Are you shocked at how massive the reach this film had? Well, I'm not shocked that a film that was not supposed to go out did go out. I'm mildly shocked or surprised that it got so much uh, play because I'm aware of uh, how pirated prints can be made. It's really very easy. Uh, you're running off uh, uh, prints at a lab or something, and uh, somebody just uh, tells one of the guys on the midnight shift, uh, here's a little money, uh, run off a print for me, and uh, that can be done. So I assume something like that was done. Somebody got a hold of the negative somewhere, 
And uh, as I say, it's easy uh, to run off a print, but I, I'm surprised that uh, it appeared so many places. There's one scene that's special effects for sure, Roger, that involves a human torch towards the end. He is full flame on, full body, uh, racing a laser and gets tossed around by it, finally is able to repel and push it back. Uh, any insight into that all coming together? I think that was the the best special effect that I saw in, in the film. Well, actually, that's one of the... Excuse me. That was actually one of the easiest, although it looked good, I think. Uh, uh, fire is easy to work with, and uh, the idea of a man or woman on fire is not difficult because they're wearing a fireproof suit, and uh, uh, you're using a, a... You pour a little... Uh, there's a special... It isn't gasoline. It's something like that that burns at a low temperature. So... That's not difficult to pull off. Well, that is great insight to that because I thought it came out really well, considering everything else that you had to do with that, you know, outside of costuming because there's not too much special effects-wise there. Uh, But that leads me into thinking, not to drift off of the Fantastic Four, but as someone who has not... I'm not talking about myself in general. People who have seen more than a couple of your films, what would you say either that you've heard or there are certain film qualities or characteristics that stand out in your mind that people can just look at a motion picture and say, oh, that's Roger Corman? Uh, Well, the fact that I work in genres so much, I've done science fiction, I've done horror, I've done action, I've even done westerns, I've done gangster films, I like to work in different genres. And if there's anything, at least in my mind, that separates them from some of the others is that I follow the sort of tried and true formulas of the genres, but I always try to bring something new and different. So I'm not following a formula right down the line. I'm finding a way to take a new look at it, a new interpretation. For instance, when I did uh, Frankenstein Unbound, Universal wanted me to make a picture that uh, they had done some research that said a picture called Roger Corman's Frankenstein uh, would be profitable, and they asked me if I wanted to make it, and I said no. Uh, it's just just, just going to be another Frankenstein. Um, and then they kept offering me a little more money, and finally I said, well, if I could find a new way to do it, and I found a novel by Brian Aldiss, an English science fiction writer, in which somebody from the 21st century travels back in time and meets Dr. Frankenstein. Now, I've forgotten, I changed when I made the picture, I changed the character to make him a scientist from the 21st century. Um, Other than that, I followed the book, and that gave me a new look at uh, Frankenstein, in which a 21st century scientist meets a 19th century scientist, and they bond to a certain extent. Very cool. I was thinking in terms of were there or are there, is it lighting, is it certain shots or angles that, you know, some people might say, oh, yeah, that's he likes to use that, he likes to do those kinds of things. Nothing nothing to, to that effect. That's a, oh, that's a Roger oh, Corman signature move or whatever. 
a little bit in that area. I like to have movement, uh, both movement of the people and movement of the camera. Uh, essentially, you have to have certain set shots, but motion pictures are essentially the art of the moving image, and I take that literally. So I try to move the people and move the camera a little bit more than most directors did when I was directing. But today, you see uh, more movement. Uh, you look at a film that's made today and a film that was made uh, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, and one of the differences you will see is that there's uh, more movement within the film. Is there a, I know you mentioned a lot of genres, all these things you've been able to work in and thrive to a great degree, I think. And is there a certain type that you, if you had a choice, that you got the most satisfaction of working in, if you know what I mean? Probably the Edgar Allan Poe pictures. Mm -hmm. um, I never set off to make a, a series of Poe pictures. I simply wanted to make The Fall of the House of Usher. But it was quite successful and uh, AIP, American International Pictures, the company I made it for, asked me to make another one, and I think I ended up making seven of them, and they wanted me to make another one, and I said, no, at that point, I said, that I'm starting to repeat myself. Uh, I try to make each one uh, somewhat different, and uh, I've essentially burned out on this subject. I'm going to move on to something else. Well, I give you a lot of credit for you know the fact that we're able to talk to you and kind of gloss over a, a long illustrious career. We use that word already, but still working at ninety two. I mean, bless you. <laughs> he didn't sneeze, Eddie. Well, but when I'm he does, he'll fewer, think of me. Yeah, I'm making fewer films, but uh, still in there trying. Now, Roger, going back over to the Fantastic Four. I'm curious, did you ever see any of the Fantastic Four films that followed yours? And if you did, what did you think of them? Uh, I saw the first one. I thought it was a good picture, um, uh, and it reflected the fact that it was a much bigger budget film. Uh, the script had changed a little bit from Burns' original, and I thought his original script was a little bit better than the script in the picture. But basically, I thought it was a good picture. Now, again, I'm also curious, with the Fantastic Four film that you did, do you think we'll ever see a DVD, Blu-ray streaming release of it official, official? I don't think so. I think uh, I think there's a signed contract with Burnt uh, where he agreed if they gave him the $60 million to make the big-budget picture that he would step away from the $1 million picture. That's, that's a real shame because, again, this is a film, it should be released, it should be seen by more people because it's got the DNA of what made the Marvel movies they are now. And, again, I want to know, with the Marvel movies nowadays, with the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe interconnected, we have a question from, let's see, from Shane Hagedorn asking what you think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe format of the cinematic universe going across TV shows, movies, etc.? I think, by and large, they are excellent, and they're more than movies. They're an entire movement, and they've changed the concept of big-budget films um, so that Marvel, the very name Marvel itself, starts to sell a picture 
and I think they're extremely well made from the standpoint of the special effects. Uh, they're just phenomenal. If I had any criticism, it's on a couple of them. The special effects have taken precedence over the story, and uh, they might have stayed a little closer to the original concept. But uh, uh, there's no point in knocking them. They're phenomenally successful, and I think deservedly so. Who is your favorite that you've seen out of those so far? Again, I wouldn't pick one because I haven't seen them all. Uh, uh, so I'm not certain. Uh, now, is Deadpool Marvel? It's Marvel, but it's not a part of the Marvel Studios stuff. Uh, I liked Deadpool uh, because I didn't remember seeing it as, um, as a comic book, uh, but I liked the idea that they turned around and made and had fun with the concept. Uh, Deadpool 1, I thought, was pretty good, but I thought Deadpool 2 was very good. Myself, I preferred Deadpool 2 over the first one, too. It's got, it's got a much more rewatchability to it, you know? Yes. Now, also, with the Fantastic Four, there's a lot of, again, the urban legend of it all, the the notoriety of it, of being the unreleased film. And it's even been referenced in pop culture. And Nick Wojtek wants to know, in regards to that, were you ever approached by the people involved with the show Arrested Development who had the Fantastic Four film be a major plot point in the fourth season? No. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I made the one film, and that was it. That's a lot of stuff to cover, and we could go on for I don't know how much longer, but uh, great insight, great to talk about all the stuff you've done, or some of it at least, Roger, and uh, you know, lots of continued success. Keep going as long as you can and want to. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Roger, it was an absolute pleasure. And before we can go, let's... Well, Roger, how can people get a hold of you on the Internet? Uh, let me see. I have a, something on Facebook that I don't uh, uh, follow that much. I should, matter of fact, I've been told many times I should uh, pay more attention to it. And as a matter of fact, I probably will. For instance, after the success of uh, Death Race 2000, I've come up with a a new concept, Death Game 2084, which I'm working on. And I probably should be uh, sending out uh, some information on that, but I'm just working on the script at the moment. Very cool. Now, once again, let's let's do our little uh, ending rigmarole, Eddie. Okay, Peter. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Give us a like on there. Give myself a like, facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can also go find us on Twitter at... The Marvelists. Follow myself as well, at Peter Melnick. You can find us on Instagram at... The Marvelists. Once again, you can also find myself on Instagram at Peter Melnick. And also, Eddie, yourself... At Eddie9193. Drop a line in our email bag, questions, comments, etc., etc., the Marvelous at gmail.com. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming and listening platforms. Basically, if you got ears, you're going to enjoy us. You go on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, and share, etc., etc. Again, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Podbean, and what's, what's another one? SoundCloud. Just available for all iOS and Android devices. If it's a, if it's a cell phone or tablet, you can listen to us on it. But... Stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. 
And once again, get a free one month of Stitcher Premium and use the promo code yada, 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 Marvelist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you can be able to listen to a ton of audio content, including Marvel's first foray into podcasting, Wolverine. The Long Night. And yeah. So once again, Roger, thank you for being on the show. Very good. Thank you. It's been interesting because you you made it more of a, a conversation than an interview, and I thought that was good. We try. Lord knows. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you again, Roger. Okay. For Peter um, Melnick, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. <laughs>